Thanks for joining me for today's podcast. Uh, We're starting a new series called The Journey. And this is going to be a 49-week chronological journey through the Bible. So we're going to bring everything together and get a broad overview of the Bible, but also see how intricately it's connected. And we're going to put uh, the puzzle pieces together, if you will, as we pull from different books of the Bible to put them where they belong in chronological order. So my hope is that this really brings the Bible to life for you, uh, that it's exciting for you, it helps you fall in love with the Word of God more, and uh, that it really blesses you and your relationship with Jesus. So let's get started by diving into the book of Genesis. The Bible says that all Scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable for instruction, for rebuke, for correction, for teaching, so that the man of God may be complete, all right, and be able to be equipped for every good work, all scripture. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of churches don't teach all scripture, and a lot of Christians don't know the scriptures. I know for me, growing up in church for many, many years, it was just a matter of me, you know, reading what was in a, in a Bible reading plan that I had picked up or what I got from church. And it wasn't until I started going to a church that taught the Bible systematically and expositionally bringing it out and making it clear and understandable that I began to see how things work together and how it's connected. And, you know, I was reading books like Habakkuk, all right? When was the last time anybody read Habakkuk, you know? And you know, there's, there's these books that we don't usually go to. But when we read through the Bible, it begins to show us the big picture. And we're going to do this chronologically. So you'll notice that in the reading list, next week we're going to be taking on the entire book of Job. How are we going to do that? What we're doing is it's going to be chapter by chapter, and some stuff I'm just going to glance through. Some stuff we'll be honing in very, very tightly. And we're going to see the expansiveness of the Word of God how it is so incredibly huge and connected and how it is so cohesive and comes together. And my hope and prayers is as we go through this, you'll go, I had no idea of that. I had no idea of that. And I didn't know that was tied to that. And I didn't know that was tied to that. And I didn't know the Bible said that. And and that it all comes together because there are 66 books in our Bible and they all make up one story. And for reasons that scholars thought that it would be to our good, and it's not a bad thing, they're broken up into sections, okay? But they're not chronological, all right? So you see the minor prophets, but they're tucked way, way more toward the end of the Old Testament, when in fact, when you're reading Chronicles or Kings, they're there, some of them, proclaiming the things of God. So many, many books prior, if you look at how things are laid out in our Bible. So my prayer and hope is that we go through this this ride, that the Bible will come alive, and that you might even fall in love with genealogies, okay? That would be uh, just a crazy thing to happen, all right? So this morning, we're going to read chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Genesis, okay? Not all, but we're going chapter by chapter, and we're going to bring out the the key points, okay? So let's go ahead and pray, prepare our hearts, and get ready for the ride, okay? 
Heavenly Father, since this is declared to be the inspired word of God, and that by it we receive our instruction, what is right, when we're not right, how to get right, and how to stay right, that this makes us complete and equips us for every good work, that makes your word the most important physical item on the face of the planet that we have. This is your word. It is your revelation of yourself to us and of ourselves to us. It is your message of hope, your message of relationship, your message of redemption. It lays out your plan, not just from time past and eternity past, but into eternity future. Paul had said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And as we go through your word, your counsel, help us to grow in our love for you, to understand ourselves better, you better, and your heart for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There it is. Okay? The statement is made. It's plain and simple. There is a lot of debate as to how God created the heavens and the earth. People will look at this and, and go, well, it says six days, but... It's maybe not a literal six days, okay? Because days can mean time periods. Yes, they can. When Darwinism was gaining ground, there was a teaching that, well, maybe there's a gap here where things are destroyed and then we have all the fossil records and everything and then God recreates the earth. No, that's not what we have here. I want to say this as we go into the word of God. There are different types of literature in the Bible. There is poetry, there is history, there is doctrine, teaching, okay? And we need to know what we're dealing with to interpret it well. Genesis is a history book, okay? And J. Vernon McGee made a statement that has stuck with me for decades. He said, if it makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you get nonsense, okay? If it says something and, and you go, that, that makes sense. I, I, don't, I don't understand it. I can't figure out how God could possibly do that. Understand this, God did this, okay? God can do anything. That's why he's God. And we have a tendency to put them in the box and we go, well, maybe it was six time periods. Well, if it's six time periods and it's designated by an evening and a day and you've got plants and you've got a time period of, let's say, 8,000 years of darkness and you've planted your plants, anybody with a garden can tell you eight years, 800 years or 8,000 years of darkness for a plant will kill it. Okay, it needs photosynthesis. That's the way God made it. And so what we have here is very specifically, the first day God spoke and he said, let there be light. And he separated the darkness from the light and the darkness he called night and the light he called day. There was an evening, there was a morning, one day. Now you could go on and say, well, yeah, but you can talk about the eve of history or the dawn of history, and yes, you can. But again, this is, very, this is saying very, very emphatically, time and time again, day, night, morning, evening, day, okay? I believe that God created the universe in six literal days. Because my God can do that. My God can do that. My God is the one who walks upon the waters. 
My God is the one who speaks to a man dead for four days and rotting and says, Lazarus, come forth. My God is a God who parts the Red Sea. And on and on. He is the all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient, mighty God. And he is our father. He is our friend. And when we can rest in a God of infinite power, there is nothing. As, as the word of God says, Jeremiah, Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Behold, nothing is too difficult for you. If my God can make the universe in six days, he can handle anything we face. Amen? He's got it. Six days, I believe, from what it says here. First day, light. Morning, evening. Second day, separation of the waters. Canopy of water in the, in the skies, in the heavens, and the seas. Day three, God separates the waters from the land, and he causes plants to grow. Now, this is interesting because there's no sun. There's just light. Revelation, when it talks about the new Jerusalem, it says there's no temple because God is, his, is the temple and the lamb is the temple. And there is no need for sun or moon because God is its light. The presence of God. The sun and the moon and the stars didn't come until day four. Evening, morning, day, night, sun, moon, stars, fourth day. Fifth day, sea creatures and birds. Sixth day, insects, livestock, other animals. And then this creation called man. Very, very unique and different. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, or 11, I'm sorry. It says, by faith we understand that God created the heavens. That which is unseen, or that which is seen, created by what is unseen. By faith we understand this. Not believe it, understand it. God said it, as the old saying goes, that settles it. I believe it, that settles it, right? We understand that God created it. Romans. The heavens declare the glory of, the God, of, of God. Psalms talks about how it proclaims the glory of God. Creation does. And so on the sixth day, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, now I want to lay this out before we go further because we're going to see this time and time and time again in scripture. It's going to come back when we hit the book of Exodus and it's going to carry through the law and we'll see it over and over again in scripture. When it says God, it's the Hebrew name for God, Elohim. It is a plural. It is literally God's. Okay, there's not more than one God. Okay, look at what it says. So God, verse 27, Elohim, plural, created man in his singular own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So we see the statement, God created the heavens and the earth, and then how he did it. Then in chapter two, it's God created man and how he did it. In verse five, it says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain onto the, on the land, stop. Do you notice that it says Lord God? Okay, so Lord, singular, Yahweh. Okay, I, I choose Yahweh. Some people say Jehovah. We really don't know which it is, but 
Yahweh is a name that is, is a form of three words, which is he was, he is, he will be. Okay. And that's why when Moses says, who shall I say sent me? God says, tell them I am that I am. It's a play on the word Yahweh. Okay. You tell them the one who was, is, and will be sent you. Oh, does that sound familiar? That Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come? He's the Alpha and the Omega. Okay? So, Yahweh is the personal name for God. It's the covenant name for God. When he's speaking to Moses, he says, you tell them Yahweh sent me and they have not known me by this name. It's not that they didn't know the name Yahweh. It's, we, we see it here. But they did not experience and have a relationship with God in that way. So when he led them out of Israel, that covenant, personal, intimate relationship with himself was reinstituted. And so this name Yahweh is very, very important. I bring that up because now is when God makes man. When he made the universe, when he made the animals and all of that, Elohim. When he makes man, the personal Yahweh, okay? And he formed him out of the clay and in his nostrils, he breathed the breath of life. Breath in Hebrew is ruach. And it means breath and it also means spirit. There is a unique relationship between God and man that is not with any other creature because we are a spiritual being. We are made in the image of God, right? We are creative. We are eternal. All right. Not that we've been eternal past, but we will live forever in all eternity with the Lord, if we follow Christ, if we reject the Lord, then the only other option is judgment and eternity in hell. Either way, we're eternal beings. And that's a very, very serious thing to consider. So here we are made in the image of God. We see that God is a plural, Elohim, but singular, Yahweh. We are triune beings, okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are flesh, soul, and spirit. We're very unique. We are made in the image of God. And we'll see how this uh, formulates out even a little bit more in this plan for, for the family. Okay? So going on, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Going down to verse 16, he says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so God had Adam name the animals. He brings them along, okay? And as he's looking, he's going, there's not one like me. The chimpanzee has some similarities, but I'm not digging it. Um, you know, it's just that's this isn't working. There's there's no one like me. And so God puts him to sleep. And from his side, he fashions Eve. There's an old rabbinical saying that God did not create woman from the head that she would rule over the man, nor from the feet that he would be over her, but from his side that they would work together as equals, helpers. And that's such a beautiful picture. And you notice that God put Adam in a garden. The job is to rule the earth. Not, not like we think of ruling and stuff so often where it's just tyrannical and abusive and everything, but stewardship of God's creation. 
and he takes Adam and he doesn't say, okay, dude, here's a big planet, man. Go for it. Take care of it. You know, so no, he puts him in a garden and says, okay, we're starting here. And as you multiply, then you go further and further out. When God was bringing Israel into the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy, he says, I'm not going to give you the whole land in one shot. Because if I did, the wild animals would overtake you. You could not handle it. And so I'm going to give it to you bit by bit. And you're going to grow into it. You're going to grow into the work and the blessings and the things that I have for you. The disciples, he didn't call them and say, okay, guys, all right, God bless you. See you. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. No. For three years, he poured into those guys. And then he gave them the Holy Spirit after his resurrection and sent them out. The commission was go into Jerusalem, small, Judea, a little bigger, Samaria, the other most parts of the world. You grow into it. And God is so good. He gives us everything we need to do his will and his work. And the fact that he wants to utilize us in his creation. Next week when we're in Job, we're going to see that God uses his people outside the bounds of the natural realm. We see that with Job. We see that in Ephesians with the church. So God has a plan for us that is much bigger than we often realize. And maybe won't realize until we're with him in eternity. Okay. And what God has there, I have no idea. I just know it's going to be good. But God gave a purpose. He gave a place. And then going on, it says, when he gives Eve to Adam, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is one of many reasons why the family is so important to God. It is a picture of the nature of God. Out of the one, Adam, came two, bone of bone, flesh of flesh, okay? Separate, but same. God says, the man shall leave his mother and father, okay, specifically mother and father, and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one, right? That intimate union, that spiritual union, emotional union, psychological union, and physical union, and from the two come a third, a child. The family is an intimate picture of the relationship that God has with Father and Spirit. You know, I've, I grew up hearing people say God needed somebody to love, and that's why he made us. He had Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He definitely does not need me. He chose me. He loves me. He wants me. But if you're the I am, you have no need of anything or anyone. But the family is that picture of separate individuals unified together. That child is separate, but is a composite of the two. That's incredible. You know, was, it, was anybody in, a, uh, in, in my class that I taught on worldviews and I showed the explosion of the embryo? Okay. If you go out and you look at uh, uh, the uh, uh, light from an embryo, when, when a child is conceived and the sperm and the egg hit, there is an explosion and a flash of light. It's so cool. And the two become one. It's awesome. So God's plans and purposes are so rich and so valuable. The family is God's design. And then in comes the person who destroys and steals and kills, Satan. Chapter 3, and it's the fall. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did not God say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So one of the ploys that Satan uses is call into question the things that God has said. Well, did, did God really mean that? There are so many people who take the word of the living God and say, well, God really didn't mean that. And he really didn't mean that, you know, there's a literal hell and a literal judgment. And God didn't mean you actually have to come to Jesus. You know, there's, there's other ways to God. And there's that calling into doubt the very things that God says. And she says to him, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. God did not say don't touch it. Okay? He said don't eat it. So she's adding to what God said. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Is that true? Absolutely. You will be like God and you will know good and evil. And God knows there's some things you don't want to know and you don't need to know. And he lies and he's a deceiver. The scriptures tell us the wages of sin is death. And that Satan comes to steal and to kill and destroy. Right out of the get-go, he's wanting to destroy this beautiful relationship between God and humanity. Right out of the gate, he wants to destroy this beautiful union between the husband and the wife. Right out of the gate, he wants to destroy the family. Because what follows this is Cain and Abel. His ambition is to destroy everything God has for us, to rob us of God's best, to rob us of salvation if we're not born again, okay? To pull us away from God, that is his aim. And so she looks and she says, hey, you know, this, this looks good and uh, it's gonna make one wise. I can be like God. I can be like God. And there are so many people out there who teach you can be like God. You can be a God. Oh, I like that. And so she eats. And if you notice, it says in verse 6, she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He was not fishing. He was not off doing something. He was right there. And we do not see Adam going, hey, time out, sorry. Eve, come here. You know, let's get over here. And then, all right, Satan, um, we're, we're going to have some words here. No, he doesn't intervene. He doesn't do anything. He just follows along. And they go down. They fall. And so here comes God. And you see the intimacy that was there. God comes walking in the cool of the morning in the garden. Adam, where are you? He doesn't break in on the scene like he's hiding behind someplace or whatever, watching to see what they're going to do. And then when they fall and they sin, God jumps out and goes, ha ha, I got you. Now I'm going to get you. You know? No. He comes in and it's like, Adam, where are you? I'm hiding. Okay. I was, uh, uh, I was naked and I was ashamed and, and they knitted fig leaves together. Has anybody dealt with fig trees before? We had one growing in our house, or not in our house, by our house in Jerusalem. It's not pleasant. When we try to cover sin on our own, oh, it's not comfortable at all. It, it, it is irritating. And they had fig leaves, that's bad. Okay, that's really bad. But they're hiding. And God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to? He's giving Adam the opportunity to come forward and repent. Adam, where are you? I'm, I'm, I'm here, Lord. Um, 
I disobeyed you. But he didn't do that. But God gives him the opportunity. We'll see the same thing with Cain. But look at what happens here. Verse 15. We know the curses and all of that. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the promise of the coming of Jesus. There is no seed of the woman. It's the seed of the man. The virgin birth. And God is promising that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent, defeat Satan. In Romans, it talks about the first Adam, and because of the first Adam, we are all under sin. But because of the second Adam, Jesus, there is forgiveness and redemption for sin. Under the first Adam, paradise lost. Under the second Adam, paradise regained. The promise is here. And then it goes into chapter 4, Cain and Abel. This is probably about 129 years after this event. Why? Because Seth was born when Adam was 130. Seth was the one who took the place of, of, uh, of Abel. In verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought... Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that the reason why Abel's was accepted was because it was an offering of faith. Now, we don't know for sure but the Bible tells us that God made skins as a covering for Adam and Eve because the fig leaves just were not working out. But it is believed that the skins came from a lamb. Sacrifice for sin, a covering for sin, a covering of the shame, a covering for the guilt. And if that's the case, it would make sense why Abel is offering a lamb. And he's coming to God by faith on God's terms. But apparently Cain is not. And he's upset that God doesn't want his, his offering. He's not coming to God the way that God desires. And he says, Cain, don't be upset. You know, if you do well, if you do things the way you're supposed to, you'll be accepted. No big deal. If you don't, you won't. And he said, be careful because sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you and you need to rule over it. If you go back to the curse that was on Eve, the very same phrase in that her desire would be for her husband, but he would rule over her. That beautiful relationship was warped and twisted and broken. And she would desire her husband, but instead of this beautiful union, domineering. And sin wants to take over Cain. And in a good sense, God says, you need to rule this thing. But we know what happens, right? Cain killed Abel. And so here comes God, and God says, Cain, where's your brother? Again, here's the opportunity. You know what? I know you told me, and I just got in the flesh and I killed him. No, it didn't happen that way. Where's Abel? How should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know. God says, what have you done? Because his blood cries out to me from the ground. Jesus, when he's rebuking the Pharisees and their sin and their opposition to God, he says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was slain on the altar, at the altar, their blood cries out because of the disobedience and the opposition 
that the Pharisees and the people of Israel had toward the things of God, resisting and fighting and killing his prophets. So this is a big thing going on here. And we know the story. God says, all right, you're going to not get anything from the land. And uh, you're going to be in the land of wandering for the rest of your life. So he takes his wife. I don't know how many people around at this time. We know it's probably in the neighborhood of 120 years. And if they're having kids, you know, one a year, go forth and multiply. That's the, that's the mandate. You know, there's a pretty hefty amount of people in 100 years or so as they're growing and the family's growing. But we think of the mark of Cain being a bad thing. God shows this man mercy. He says, if I go out, people are going to kill me. And so God put a mark on Cain to preserve his life. Judgment on Adam and Eve, judgment on humanity. But there was mercy. There was a sacrifice and the promise of the coming Lamb of God who would be the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. Mercy here. And then we go into chapter 5. You want to hear the gospel? Here's our first genealogy. Okay? Check this out. At the end of chapter 4, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and they'd had many kids, okay? And she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth was born, a son was born, his name was Enosh. At, the time, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, if you turn over to the end of chapter 5, verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So God curses the land because of Adam. The land is cursed because of what Cain does. Cain's not going to get anything from it. God curses the earth at the judgment of the flood. And God says at the end in the Noahic covenant, I will never curse the earth again because of man. Okay? So listen to the names here. And I'll just give you the names in this genealogy. Adam means man. Seth, we've just learned, means appointed. Enosh, mortal. Then his son, Kenan, means sorrow. His son, Mahalalel, means the blessed God. Jared, his son, means shall come down. Enoch means teaching. In Jude, we know that Enoch was a prophet and proclaimed the things of God during these times. Methuselah, his death shall bring. And Lamech, the despairing. And Noah, relief or rest. So you go through the names. Man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing. Rest. Kind of cool for a genealogy, huh? There's the gospel. Right there, before God brings the flood and destroys the earth, Noah would be one who would bring rest, ultimately the Son of God, the blessed God who came down and teaches us, will give us rest. That's like... That's really cool. That excites me. And then the flood comes. We're familiar with it, chapter 6. Jesus says in Matthew that as in the days of Noah, men and women and people were marrying and giving a marriage and partying and all of that, and then the flood came and took them all away. The time of Noah was horrific. Violence was rampant. Now the earth was corrupting God's sight and all the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh 
for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy uh, them with the earth. And then he tells Noah to make the ark. First Peter tells us that Noah was condemning sin and preaching the message of God's coming judgment to the world at this time, to the people at this time. As he's building this, and people are going, what are you doing? What's going on? God's judging the world with a flood because of your sin, because of your violence, and all. And that whole time, the people did not listen. They refused to listen to the message. And when the Lord comes back and the gospel is being preached and proclaimed, and we see the, you know, in the book of Revelation where we've got the, the, the two, uh, the two uh, prophets, you know, that are speaking and all, and they're rejected, they're killed, God raises them back from the dead and brings them into heaven. There is this absolute rejection of the things of God and the gospel of God in the last days. And just as when people are doing what they want to do, God comes back. Jesus comes back. It was a time of spiritual corruption, moral corruption. I won't get into the Nephilim and all that stuff. There's so many speculations, but apparently there was demonic activity going on where, you know, these giants were being formed and such, and it was just a mess, and God had to judge it. So on Noah's 600th year, God brought them into the ark, seven pairs each of clean animals, one pair each of the unclean, shut them up for a little over a year. The Bible talks about this as being a picture of baptism. Peter refers to it, not that baptism saves, but it's a response of a good heart toward God. Noah and his family responded to God and God brought them through the flood. And that flood, that water washed away the old world, the old life. And God opened up a whole new world, a whole new life, a fresh start for them to begin. When we look in the book of, of, of Exodus, the Red Sea is also a picture of that same thing. The old life, boom, it's gone. You go through the water, that's gone. New beginning, new life, new way. So this is a thing that is just brought to life throughout the whole of scripture. We have the flood. At the end of it, they come out. It's a little after a year of being in a boat. And I'm sure they were very glad to get out of there. <laughs> you know, one window, mm, you know, that's, that's, that's just not fun. But uh, God renews the covenant. And he says this in verse three or six in chapter nine, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. There was violence that was just astronomical before the flood. God wipes it out. Now, if you murder, you kill a man, a person, you will pay with your life because he is created in the image of God. And then there's the rainbow and God says, I'll never destroy the earth again by a flood. And as I look at this, we live in a time where the rainbow is something that you see with the alternative lifestyles or, you know, little unicorns and rainbows and little things for kids and stuff. And um, it's, yeah, it's a symbol of God's promise, but we've forgotten why the promise is there because there was judgment for sin. Because of immorality, because of violence, because of corruption, God had to judge. And it's like, Lord, you know, every time I see a rainbow now, I really need to remember why that's there. And if we would remember why God put it there, yes, there's a promise of hope, but that's because there's judgment as well. We need to be so mindful of why God does things. And then in chapter 10, the table of nations, and then chapter 11, Babel. You have Nimrod, a mighty hunter in all the earth. And 
the word there uh, probably means tyrant. He was like probably the first global tyrant kind of guy. Everybody spoke one language, of course. They all came from one family. And I want you to notice what they say here. This is in uh, verse 8. Then they, I'm sorry, verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispensed over the entire or the face of the whole earth. Now, what was God's commission to Noah and his descendants? For Adam and Eve, go forth and multiply and fill the earth. God judges the earth, starts fresh with Noah and his family, go forth and multiply and fill the earth. And so you have this group saying, let's stay put right here. Let's make a name for ourselves. We're going to bring glory to ourselves. We're going to build this great tower. We're going to be a great people. And God comes down and says, no, we're not going to have this. And he confuses their language and everything falls apart. And we have everybody breaking away into their respective languages and begin to go across the face of the earth. Which I think is interesting because when the church was born, God said, or Jesus said very clearly, go begin in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, that's northern Israel, and the other most parts of the world. And what did the church do? They just sat there in Jerusalem. And through the diaspora and the persecution and all, they began to go and do what God had them do. There's a tendency for us to like to get comfortable. I like it here. We'll see this when Israel is about to go into the land of Canaan. And... uh, Manasseh and Reuben and Gad come to Moses and say, you know, we really like this land on this side of the Jordan. We don't want to go into the promised land. We want to stay here. And Moses says, okay, but you have to go help your brothers take the land that God's given them. Then you can come back. All right. Okay. That sounds good. They liked it there. When judgment came from God, from the Assyrians and other enemies, guess who was the first to take the hit? Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Because they weren't where God had originally wanted them to be. You look at Lot. He looked to the well-watered plains of the Jordan. Oh, that looks good. I like it there. Abraham was, well, I'm going to go with God. I'll take whatever you don't want. So he get, takes the best. Abraham gets everything else. And we know what happened a lot in his family. We'll see that next week. So God's plan for us is relationship. And he has purposes for us within our families our relationships and serving him. Ours is not a life of aimless wandering like a cane, just trying to figure out life. And like so many in this world, what am I here for? What's my purpose? We know what we're here for. Our purpose is to have fellowship with the almighty creator of the universe. Our purpose is to enjoy relationship with him. Our purpose is to let him use us and be a part of the things that he is doing and wants to do. There is an abundant life, Jesus says, that he has given us, a life of rich intimacy with God. And if we walk with the Lord, the blessings that will come from that are huge. Some we will see now, some we will see in eternity. And from this point on, we're going to see those who choose to walk with God and those who choose not to. And their stories are very different. 
We see that even this morning. So that's a lot. But I hope that you've been able to see a little bit bigger picture outside the walls of Genesis and how they tie to other things. Like I said, next week, we're going to dive into Job because Job, in all probability, is the oldest book of the Bible. And Job was a contemporary of Abraham. And when we see God working in Job and we see the discussion between Job and his friends, we have people, for so long, I thought Job was Jewish because he comes a lot longer, further along in, the, in my Bible, right? You know, you got Genesis and Abraham, but then you got all these books and stuff, and then you've got Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. So obviously he came a lot later, right? No, he didn't. He was a contemporary. And we see this incredible understanding of God and debate about God's heart and attitude and judgment and correction and love by this group of people who are in the area of the Jordan. And Abram is only beginning to be called and he's in the area of Babylon. Worlds apart for an ancient city, ancient time. But God's working in a much bigger picture than just Abraham. That's amazing. Father, that you have created us to have a relationship with you. You, the Almighty, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is the I am that I am, has chosen not only to have a relationship with us, but to let us be a part of your plan, to be called your sons and daughters, to be made a kingdom of priests unto our God, to be filled with the very spirit of the living God, the one who was here in creation, hovering over the waters of the deep, indwelling us, this is a mighty, powerful relationship, a beautiful relationship that you've given us. Help us not to fall prey to the lies and the attacks and the deceptions of Satan, to try to steal and kill and destroy the things that you have for us. And help us to walk by faith into the great things that you have for us. Abel walked by faith. Noah walked by faith. Enoch walked by faith. And Lord, that is the life we want to live, following you on the journey that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.